Well, good evening. I am glad to be with you this evening studying God's Word, and I am excited because we're, we're finishing another book. Of course, this is really more of a, a, a post-it than, than a book. It's more of a little note. Uh, it's Second John. You can turn there with me in chapter 1. There's only one chapter, verse 7. Now, last week, we, we looked at the beginning of this book. We talked about the background, and we talked about the introduction, and uh, we looked at how John addressed the audience, which was more than likely a church he refers to as the chosen lady and her children. Uh, we looked at his opening, and we looked at the fact that he is filled with joy because God is working in the lives of those who are members of this church. And as we talked about last week, the theme of this book is walking in the truth, and in love. And last week, that's exactly what we looked at, walking in the truth and in love. And as we talk about walking in truth and love, remember, it's a matter of being honest about God's word and honest about who we are, and being loving the way God is loving toward us. And that's a wonderful balance. Paul talks about telling the truth in love. John talks a lot about it. And now this evening, we get into the next section, which is a warning about deceivers. And I think today, in our world, and especially in the church, this is a really important message. Uh, More than ever, we have to be on guard. More than ever, we have to be concerned about the messages that we're hearing in the world, but especially in the church. There are a lot of people who use the pulpit for the wrong reasons, either for their own agenda or for political reasons, or maybe their motivation is money. (laughs) We've certainly seen that before. Uh, one of the things we know that some people have a particular bent, they, they sort of want to promote false teachings. And almost always those false teachings either benefit the person who's teaching or they give license and freedom to people so that they may sin without being convicted in their consciences. You'll see that if you look at all of the different cults and false teachings, they almost always end up in one or 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 both of those things. You you have sort of a teaching that benefits those who are teaching it, but then in addition to that, you have this idea that, you know, it's a very popular message to tell people you can do whatever you want, and God loves you anyway. Now, God does love you. There's no question about that, but that God is approving of your behavior, even when your behavior is sinful, according to his word, is heresy. And so we're going to see that that's a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, Uh, We're also going to see that just any false teaching that confuses people is really detrimental to the brothers and sisters in the faith. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So you can turn there, if you haven't already, to 2 John, verse uh, verse 7. But let's, (coughs) excuse me, let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we open your word with reverence and we ask that you would just... Excuse me. Speak to us. Show us the truth. We need to know the truth. We need to walk in truth. We need to walk in love. We need to understand your word. Give us the ability to do that, Lord. To walk in truth and love. To love others as you love us. And to love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Give us that understanding, Lord. Give us that power. Give us that willingness to follow your word and obey it. That we might glorify you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, a warning about deceivers. I think there are a lot of people out there that can easily be described as charlatans, hypocrites, con men, people who would take advantage of us if if we just let our guard down for a minute. If you don't believe that, and I know you probably do, but let's say you don't. How many more stories do I have to read about scams when people call up elderly people and talk them into giving them their personal information and then drain their accounts? How many more stories do I have to see where some cyber attack affects a company and that company is forced to pay out millions of dollars, millions of dollars in ransom because of some ransomware attack? And I honestly, when I hear these things, it upsets me greatly because it doesn't seem very just at all. And it just doesn't seem, well, it isn't just, but it just, it seems that rather than pay these people, like we should send in the Navy SEALs and take them out. Maybe that's just me. But like, how awful is it that these people are extorting money from others? And they do it to individuals. You know, if you're unfortunate enough to open the wrong email, they lock down your account and then they force you to pay all this kind of money. I just, I really, I got to tell you, it's very upsetting. Happened to a friend this week or just last week uh, at his job and they lost millions of dollars in, in paying ransoms. So if you don't think that there are people out there that are ready and willing and able to take advantage of you, then you're not thinking very clearly. So if that's in the financial world, if there are people who will take advantage of you in that regard, you have to know that there are people that will try to take advantage of you spiritually. There are people who will say things or teach things that benefit them or sort of help you to think that you can pretty much do whatever you want to your own detriment, and that it'll destroy your life. It will destroy your life. You know, I I think about just one little thing, and Anthony and I were talking about this as we were setting up tonight. You know, it seems like a lot of people are walking around in a fog, doesn't it? A lot of people are kind of out of it. And then I remember that over the last year or two, they legalized marijuana. And I wonder sometimes, oh, it's legal. I guess it's okay, right? I guess, you know, if it's legal, it's a... And so many people are just drugging themselves into oblivion. And then there are those that are addicted to devices. They never come up for air, and all they do is put their brain in vegetative state. And, and we see a world where people are so just open to being controlled and manipulated by media, social media, politicians. It's sad, isn't it? But we're talking tonight about walking in the truth and in love. And if we're going to walk in the truth, then we can't be deceived. You, you know, one of the frustrating things for those of us who are not deceived by our media is watching how many people are. That's so disheartening to see people deceived. And you know they're deceived, and they're just like, oh, sure, you know. I'll drink the Kool-Aid. Whatever you're telling me must be true. I read it on the Internet. Someone sent me a post. I got a tweet. The president said it. The Congress said it must be true. Brothers and sisters, more than ever now, we need to be clear-eyed. We need to be able to see the world through the lens of Scripture and not only know what's wrong, but call it out. And if you're afraid to call it out, you have to call it out with what? Love. You have to call it out in love. So let's see. Look at verses 7 through 9. What we see here is that John wants them to be able to recognize those that would try to deceive them. You have to be able to see it. You have to be able to recognize those that would deceive you. Look what he says in verse 7. We left off last week. Many deceivers 
who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world, and any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist, or the instead of Christ, or the against Christ. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's a stern warning, isn't it? To all of us to keep our eyes open. Keep your eyes open. It always amazes me when when I watch a lot of these uh, videos. And I I watch these videos, for one thing, I, I, I... practice martial arts, right? So I'm always interested when I read an article or see something in the, in the news where someone was attacked on the subway platform or someone was on a train or on a bus and someone attacked them and they'll have the video. I'm always interested, like, was the person like aware of what was going on around them? In almost every circumstance, they're looking down at their phone and suddenly they're pushed onto the tracks. I, you may like to look at your phone. Can I encourage you? You don't want to look at your phone on the subway platform. You don't want to look at your phone when you're in a parking lot. You don't want to look at your phone or be distracted when you're out in public anymore because it could cost you your life and the life of your loved ones. You don't want to be looking around and be distracted in this world today by worldly things because what could happen next could be a spiritual attack equally as disruptive as a physical attack to your life. You have to walk around with your eyes open. That's really what I'm trying to say. Your spiritual eyes. And what John wants them to know, you need to know when you see someone and you know what they're up to, you need to recognize them as deceivers. He calls them antichrists. They would seek to redefine the true nature of Christ, so they are antichrists. You realize anyone that, that describes Jesus in a way that's contrary to his word is an antichrist? If they're giving you a description of Christ or or a definition of who Christ is that's different than the Bible's definition or looking to put something or someone in your life other than Christ or in place of Christ, they are antichrists. And there is something about that word that really strikes to the heart. An antichrist. An antichrist. And I've said this before. Those that follow antichrists are antichristians. And you don't want to be either. You don't want to be an antichrist and you don't want to be an antichristian. We're told here in verse 7 that these individuals sought to deny the truth of Jesus' incarnation as the Messiah of Israel. They didn't teach that he came in the flesh. And that's why he says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And he goes on to say any, any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So when someone comes to you and says that Jesus isn't God in human flesh, then they are antichrist. Oh, my mother says that. How can you say my mother's an antichrist? Well, I'm saying that if she's against Christ and putting something in the place of Christ and saying that Christ isn't who the Bible says he is, then she is, he is, they are following the spirit of antichrist in this world. And we cannot let that go. We, we cannot just stand by and let people live the lie and not know the truth. So to walk in love and in truth is to lovingly tell someone the truth. Can we do that? These Gnostics, these heretics, they sought to deny the truth of Jesus' incarnation as Messiah of Israel. They wanted to say, well, he was a nice guy. He was a prophet. He was a great teacher. He was a great man. He was a wonderful example. He just wasn't God in the flesh. They denied Christ's incarnation. They believed 
This was their philosophy, by the way. All matter, all tangible matter, physical matter, including our bodies, was evil. And because the body is evil, Christ could not have had a body. So some of the Gnostics taught that this spirit of Christ came upon a man named Jesus, and then while this spirit was upon him, he was the Christ. But then shortly before he suffered, the Christ left Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, and then, of course, you know, that way God didn't have to suffer. But it was even more insidious than that because the reason they believed and wanted to believe that all matter and physical matter was, was, was evil is then they could say, well, when I sin with my body, God doesn't care. Because after all, the body's evil. It's what I do with my spirit that matters. So what do you think that led to? All types of sin. Because all you had to say was, well, I didn't do it. It wasn't really me. It was just my body. I I took advantage of that person. It wasn't me. That was my body. And this is the way these heretics lived. And so you can understand why John called them antichrists. Now, Jesus, Paul, Peter, and others, they all taught about the coming of these antichrists. This should be no surprise. And by the way, we are living in the last days, and we are living in the latter days of the last days. So are you surprised that the world is filled with antichrists? Are you surprised that there are people out there preaching heresy all the time? You shouldn't be. What is a little surprising is a lot of it is found in churches today. That's a little upsetting. But it really shouldn't be surprising because Paul and others and Jesus and Peter, they all told us it would happen. So now it's happening. What does that tell us? Oh, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The Lord is coming quickly. We love that. That's a great truth. But until then, we got to live here. And living in this world requires that we live in love and live in truth. So he warns them, do not abandon the fundamental teachings of God's word for this Gnostic heresy. Uh, Back in the 80s, when I became a Christian, there were a lot of Christians looking for something else, something in addition to the traditional faith. They wanted something just a little different, just a little more than just the fundamentals of the faith. And there isn't anything more than the fundamentals of the faith. And so if you go on ahead, as John describes it here, go on to other things and get away from the fundamentals of the faith, you, you really run the risk of not being a child of God. That is not serving God, not living in Christ. And this is the confidence, you know, we have, is, is that, that if we're in Christ, if we love God, uh, we're saved. But if we're not, we're not. It's, it's really that simple. John talked about that in 1 John. And now we see, he says, watch out, you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. For anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God, but whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So you have a choice to make. Are you going to hold to the traditional teachings of God's word? the fundamentals of the faith, or are you going to venture out into something new and different and more exciting, perhaps, or maybe more appealing to your flesh? Uh, A couple years ago, I think we might be going back to the 90s at this point, but certainly in the 2000s, there was a movement in the church, and the idea was this. And first of all, let me say that I do not believe that drinking is a sin. Drunkenness is clearly a sin. Revelry, carousing, you know, those things, partying, those things are sinful. But I do not believe that the consumption of alcohol in and of itself is a sin. However, there are a lot of people that struggle with the abuse of alcohol and drugs. And for some people, it is a sin because they've lost control. And then there are others like myself who just, we just choose not to drink. Well, there was a movement going on in the church. It basically came down to this, a Bible and a beer. 
And I heard a lot of it, probably in the 2000s, some of it in the 90s. I don't know if you still see much of it anymore, but the idea was that the pastors would go to bars, open up their Bible, have a beer, and teach people the Word. Does that jive with anybody? Because when I heard that, I thought to myself, that does not sound like a very good idea. I can give you a million reasons why I think it's a stupid idea. But what I do know is that when we look for something more, look to be hip or cool, or look to attract people by doing worldly things, like drinking alcohol in a bar, I don't know what good can come of that, to be honest. I really don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I spent a lot of time in bars drinking alcohol before I became a Christian, and I think I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. Not very much good happens in a bar when you're consuming alcohol. So, these types of things have a tendency to pop up every once in a while in the church, and then they disappear because lives are trashed and things go south very quickly. Who do you think is behind that? It's Satan. It's the Antichrist. That is not a good idea. And any pastor that decides to do something like that should really think it through. But I'm using that as an example because when we step away from the basic fundamental teachings of God's Word, which are very clear, prayer, fellowship, worship, which is a form of prayer, service, things like missions and ministry, the study of God's Word, communion and fellowship with God and with one another, you know, church— or what it's supposed to be. When we step outside of those fundamentals, no good ever really comes of it. When you start bringing in entertainment in the church, and the church becomes sort of a a concert venue or a theater, uh, inevitably the things of the fundamentals, they, they suffer. They get pushed aside for something more exciting and exhilarating to our flesh. I think you have to, in general, be very careful about anything that would take the place of those fundamentals that I mentioned. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, The Spirit tells us definitely that the church was busy about those things. Really just four things, prayer, fellowship, communion, you know, which was the breaking of bread, the study of God's Word, or the Apostles' doctrine. So I think you have to really be careful not to abandon the fundamentals of the faith. Now, he warns them not to do that and not to adopt any heresy, but for them it was this Gnostic heresy. For us, it can be Bible and a beer. It could be, you know, the idea of, you know, entertainment. For a while, the church embraced what we call seeker-friendly services, where, you know, they made the church look like anything but a church. They didn't talk about anything like too much about Jesus or about sin or anything that might offend someone, because their thought was, let's just get them in the door. Let's just get them in the door. And maybe their motives were even pure, but I'll tell you what, the results weren't. The results were terrible. People started to come to church because it was fun, and they really never found Jesus. And that led to another movement, the emergent movement, which came out of the seeker-friendly movement, which was, well, you know, we're just not going to do church the way we've always done church for years, decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years. We're going to get away from that because it doesn't work anymore. So we're going to look to change everything about the church. Now, things can change. Certain things can change. We talked about that recently. But, you know, they they just sort of took the church, turned it upside down, changed the way we've done things forever in an attempt to reach the postmodern culture. How did that work out? Those people all went running for the hills when COVID came. You know? You have to really ask yourself the question, is, is it a little dangerous to abandon the fundamentals of the faith that have existed since the beginning of the church, just because people might be a little bit more comfortable. And I'm not so sure comfortable is always good. Well, having said that, back to our text. This is a warning. 
Because you see, there were these wandering, itinerant preachers and teachers that were very common in the early church, and a lot of them were very good. Some of them were not very good. Just like when you turn on certain preachers on television, some of them may be very good, some of them may not be very good. But they didn't have media like that, so these preachers, these teachers would wander. They would go from place to place. They would travel from church to church. And they would impose upon the hospitality of others, which was a very common practice in the Middle East then and still is today. And there were many whom God called and ordained to minister in this way. For example, the writer of this epistle, John the Apostle, the elder of elders, was an itinerant preacher. He did this very thing. But you see, unfortunately, there were also many charlatans and con men that exploited them and took advantage of them, because this is human nature. The church was in danger of losing their material resources and their spiritual blessings. They were also in danger of losing their church members to these heretical deceptions and lives being destroyed and damaged. So not continuing to obey the teachings of Christ would prove these members as heretics. So the one way they would know a heretic is if these individuals were not continuing to obey the word of God. So I just want you to just pause for a minute and reflect on what I just said. The litmus test, the very clear litmus test as to whether someone is a heretic really is simple. Do they obey the word of God? Now they may teach you to obey the word of God, but do they obey the word of God? I'm not saying are they perfect because when they fail, they repent like the rest of us. But do they obey the word of God or do they make excuses for their disobedience? Isn't it infuriating to anybody that, you know, we live in a, a country where the, the elite make the rules, but then they, they don't follow the same rules they make? Does that bother anybody? Because it bothers the heck out of me. And in the church, when you have pastors and teachers telling you, you know, you shouldn't commit adultery, you know, you shouldn't steal, you know, you should be humble, and then you see these proud, arrogant fools running around with other women and stealing money. Does that bother anybody? Because it bothers the heck out of me. That is exactly what we're talking about tonight. We have to recognize that if someone doesn't continue to obey the teachings of Christ, they would, they're proven heretics. It's that simple. But continuing to obey the teachings of Christ would prove these members Christians. So if you see a man or a woman and they're obeying the word of God and they're teaching the word of God and their life matches up with their teaching and they don't teach things in addition to the word of God and they don't teach things contrary to the word of God, well, you don't know all things, but at least you can look at them and say, well, as far as I can tell, this person appears to be the real deal. They they appear to be a brother or sister in Christ. But these Gnostics and these heretics were obviously and clearly not the real deal. They were anti-Christians. And I think what was happening was the church was just being overly nice, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Why can't we all just get along? I don't want to call anybody out. I don't want to make anybody feel bad. You know, that's one of the things you want to be careful about. Oh, I don't want to make her feel bad. Oh, I, 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 I feel bad. I don't want to make him feel bad. Get over it. Can I just say it? Get over it. Sometimes you're not going to be happy with the things you have to say. Okay? And sometimes others are not going to be happy with the things you say. Because truth is truth in love. So that's what was happening. 
So John gives him some wonderful advice. You ready for this? This is good advice. Look at verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, John goes on to say this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Could that be any more clear? Could that be any more clear? You know, I've I've talked to Christians who know they go to a church where things aren't right, where the teaching is off, where people aren't trusting God, or they're too much about money, or all of these things. They're starting to show up, and so many Christians, because they're good-hearted people, and they're filled with love, they give their leadership and others the benefit of the doubt to the point that they're complicit in their wicked work. Is that harsh? I don't know, but it's true. I mean, if you see something going on and you see the leadership of a church doing the wrong thing and promoting the wrong things and teaching the wrong things and you continue to go and support that church, is it fair to say that you're part of the problem? You're certainly not part of the solution. And I think that's another part of the problem. I've seen some people stay at churches they need to leave. I mean, if you vote with your feet, that's a pretty powerful vote. But if you continue to attend and, and, and write checks and support a ministry that's clearly heretical in one or two or many areas, you are the problem. And John wants them to understand that. He wants them to refuse hospitality to these heretical teachers. Don't keep supporting them. Don't help them. Don't work with them. Oh, but you know what the word says? I, I need to love my enemy. Yeah, but you don't have to feed them. Not if he's coming in and and twisting the word of God. You don't have to take him in your home. Not if he's going to destroy the church. So you see, he calls them to enforce a litmus test for these itinerant preachers and teachers, one we should be implementing as well in our own lives. They must believe. These teachers, they had to pass the test. Here's the test. They must believe the truth of Jesus Christ's incarnation as the Son of God. That was like a must They had to believe this or it was a deal breaker. They couldn't support the minister. Did Jesus come in the flesh? That was one of the things John talks a lot about. Did he come in the flesh? Well, out. Out. We have no room for that nonsense here. So you see, they must believe that. If he was only a disembodied spirit, as they suggested, then there can be no real salvation. Right? I mean... He had to become, listen, he had to become, listen, he had to become what we are to make us what he is. He had to become what we are, flesh, to make us what he is, righteous and holy. So a disembodied spirit is not a way to be saved. So we reject that and any other heresy that contradicts the word of God. And they also must believe the truth of Christ's teachings from the, from the word of God. Do you believe the things Christ taught? I mean, this includes that Jesus came in the flesh, but it also includes the fact that he died on the cross for our sins. Because you see, the Gnostics also taught that the Christ left Jesus when he died on the cross. The man died on the cross, but not God. God, the God-man, you know, was two different things together, and this is kind of a duality they taught a duality of nature where you have the spirit and the flesh, and they're two different things. They kind of share the same space, but they're really two different entities. Kind of a very weird teaching, but it was very convenient when you wanted to sin. Well, it included that, but it also included the fact that Jesus rose again, amen? He rose again in the flesh and is coming again to rule and reign 
in the flesh. I think that's so important that you understand that. He's not a disembodied spirit. When he came back, he proved to them that he was bone, flesh and bone. He definitely was a risen man and is a risen man. These fundamental truths are not to be monkeyed with or tinkered with. And that's what John wants him to understand. Now, these simple requirements would protect the church from many deceivers at large. There were many deceivers at large, and this would protect them. Why? Because without a place to stay, without food to eat, these teachers would be forced to move on. If if you don't give them a place to live, they can't stay. If you don't feed them, they can't stay. And by the way, without a platform to publicly deceive the church, they would become disinterested. The only reason people go into deception and scams and cyber attacks is because it's lucrative. If it didn't work, who would waste their time? So what can we do as a church, the church of Jesus Christ? Shut down all of these types of individuals who would come into the church and try to deceive people. How do you do that? Don't write any more checks. Believe me, when, when no one writes a check to a, to a heretic like this, they'll find something else to do with their life. It'll probably be some other type of stealing, but it won't be in the church. You know, I mean, this is kind of a gross example, but when we first got married, my wife and I lived in an apartment building. And you know what we discovered? You can have the cleanest house in the world, but if one person in that building doesn't keep their house clean, you get roaches. I don't know. If you've ever experienced, okay, I see some heads shaking. You could, you could eat off your floors. It wouldn't matter if, if, if anyone in that building doesn't do what they're supposed to do, you get roaches. It just happens like that. You might as well be feeding them and breeding them. But the same is true in the church. If you feed these cockroaches and you continue to support them, they multiply. Because you know what happens? One cockroach looks over and says, you know what? This is a pretty good deal. He's driving a Cadillac. I want to drive, actually, I want to drive another type of car, foreign car. You know what? I think I'm going to try my hand at that. But if you shut it down, they run like when you turn on the light and all the cockroaches go underneath the fridge or wherever they go. They go out of sight. They don't want to be bothered anymore because you've called them out. Walk in truth and love not just to protect yourself, but to protect your brothers and sisters, to protect the church. Do not let these things go. They are far too important. You're really just breeding a disease in the church or vermin in the church. If you continue to support those you shouldn't support in the church. I think I've said that very clearly. So these simple requirements would protect the church. He warns him not to welcome those that would teach anything contrary to God's word. Look at verse 11. This is pretty severe. He says, all, all, anyone who welcomes him, that is the deceiver, shares in his wicked work. Shares in his wicked work. Do you know that, you know what being complicit means? Right? Aiding and abetting the enemy. You know what those terms mean? It's like someone's on the run and you saw their face on the 11 o'clock news. You know that they committed a crime. Okay, because if you didn't know, then you're not culpable. But you know they have. And you say, you know what? You can just sleep on my couch for a couple days until things calm down. You have shared in the wickedness of that person you're protecting. 
It doesn't matter whether that person is a person you love or care about. You've shared in their wicked work. You know, if you're the lookout when somebody's doing a heist, you know, you're the lookout, you're in the car watching out to see if the police come, you shared in that wicked work. When you support heretics in the church, you're sharing in that wicked work. You're just as guilty. If you know and understand that it is, in fact, wickedness and heresy. And I would assume if you're reading God's word, you'd probably be able to know that. I think more people need to take that a little bit more seriously. Not necessarily in our church, but just in general, in the church in general. So providing an antichrist with hospitality would be supporting him in his wicked work, and anyone that did so would be considered an antichrist as well. So it's not just what you do and what you believe, but do you support people that believe and teach things that are heretical? Okay, now, after that very, very powerful warning and exhortation, he closes his letter in just two verses. He says it this way. He says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face. You remember what communication face to face was like, some of you guys? Remember those days when we used to have conversations, look in each other's eyes? Not through a screen, not through the text, you know, not through an email. He says, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. And that's how he closes this brief note, really. It's more of a note than a letter, but it is a letter, an epistle. John plans to visit them in the near future to further discuss the importance of walking in truth and in love. He has a lot more to say about this. And he realizes the limitations of trying to communicate about these issues in written form. And I want you to realize the limitations of written communication. There are times where it's appropriate, but most of the time, if you want to get your point across, written communication is lacking what face-to-face communication can accomplish. For one thing, you guys know how much of communication is nonverbal. I mean, I've heard the stats. I don't know how real they are, but I've heard things like 70% of all communication is nonverbal. Whether that's right or not, the majority of communication has to do with things like what your face looks like when you say something. When, when, are you smiling when you say something? Are you waving your arms and your face looks like you're a maniac when you're saying something? And then another key component is tone of voice, you know. At least on the telephone, you can get tone of voice. And of course, with uh, FaceTime and Skype and Zoom and conference calls, you can get a little of all of that. But there's nothing quite like face-to-face communication. But written communication, even with emojis, is lacking in the force of reality that is necessary to properly communicate your point. So this is why you don't break up with someone over text. I think that should be known, right? That's, that's a pretty clear thing, right? You don't send an email to express your deepest thoughts. You look someone in the eye and you have a conversation. That's what we call it, a conversation. John knew that, and he had said some very, very strong things, but he knew if he went much further, he ran the risk of being misunderstood, And this is why so many times I'd be at my desk when I was working in the corporate world and I realized I was talking about some very technical things and it was important that I have a face-to-face communication. Uh, I'd be writing an email and I would just stop, delete the email, get off my chair, (laughs) walk to the other end of the building, 
sit down and have a conversation with the person that I was about to write an email to. Now, it's not always possible, but in most cases, that's way more effective than sending that email or that text or that phone call even. So he understood the importance of face-to-face communication. There are limitations to trying to communicate about deep, important issues in written form. By the way, the standard papyrus sheet measured 10 by 8. I, measured, I mentioned this measurement last week. The length of this letter would have taken up almost exactly one sheet. So it's just a brief note. He never intended to, to elaborate beyond this. It would be far easier for him to communicate in person with the benefit of dialogue. You know what I really don't like about texting? You send something, and then you wait. And then you wait. And then you see those three dots, and you wait. And sometimes the three dots go away, and you're not sure, is, is, uh, did they change their mind? Are they going to respond? That is not dialogue. Dialogue is like you're sitting across the table looking at each other and, you know, asking questions and responding and nonverbal communication. And I'll tell you what, if I can, I know, I know no one's going to listen to this, so why am I bother saying it? If I can just encourage you in the area of communication, because I am a communicator, if I can just say this to you, text less. Just text less. Only text when you absolutely have to and when a few words will get the job done. Email only when necessary, and you need a historical record of your communication. Business applications are a good place for that. But can I just encourage you, if it takes five minutes to get to a location to have a face-to-face communication, or FaceTime's an option, look people in the eye and talk to them. This is what's lacking in our culture today, and it's why people are walking around in a fog and don't know what the heck they're thinking or doing. That and perhaps drugs. Please, think about it. Just think about it. Start replacing some of those types of communication with better forms of communication, I promise you your relationships will improve. I promise you you'll enjoy life a little bit more. If you're feeling anxious or depressed, do you know that God created us to converse and to dialogue? That that meets a social need and that without it you can actually become anxious and depressed? It's like babies, they need touch or they they don't develop properly. As a human being, you need to look people in the eye and have a conversation every once in a while. Listen, if you like, I hope you will. But I strongly suggest you listen. Five minutes of heart-to-heart talk can do what a whole stack of letters is unable to. Letters often succeed in exacerbating a situation through misunderstanding. Have you ever had that happen? I have. A good rule of thumb is never write what you cannot speak. Never write what you cannot speak. Sometimes I'll get a letter and it's like, oh, pastor, I was afraid to bring this up. Well, you know what? Don't write it then. If you can't look me in the eye like a man or a woman and tell me how you're feeling, maybe you shouldn't say it. His purpose in visiting with them is to make their joy complete through faith in Christ. We are strangely lacking in joy today in our world. You know that, and even in the church. Could it be that some of the reason we're lacking in joy is that we forget that he said, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete or full. See, joy comes from social interaction. It comes from fellowship, interaction, communication, face-to-face dialogue. 
When you separate yourself from that, you become weird and strange. Or have you forgotten the Unabomber? Remember that guy? I just would say to you, please think about what I'm saying. So, John the Apostle sends greetings from a group of individuals with a specific, uh, or within a specific church fellowship when he says, the children of your chosen sister, speaking of the members of a church, sister church, they send their greetings, and he says that he shares that truth. Uh, he also was uh, no doubt visiting with another specific church when he wrote this brief epistle. This is what he did. He went from church to church. So he's with this church, and he says, hey, I'll be there soon. The church that I'm with right now, they send their greetings. And remember, for reasons of safety, and because there was persecution, more than likely he didn't identify which church or where he was. But they would have known. He may have even been with a man named Gaius, to whom he wrote his third epistle. When we get there next week, you'll see he wrote that epistle to a man named Gaius. He might have even been with Gaius at that time. The point is, as we close, the relationship was extremely important in the early church. And it's extremely important today. And through relationship, we can weed out deceivers. Through relationship, we can build relationship with one another and build one another up. We can encourage one another. We can grow in our faith and in our relationships with one another. But if you take relationship out of Christianity, you are left with something less than a relationship with Christ. You really are left with something significantly less. So why am I so against large fellowships? Because I think relationship suffers. God works through large fellowships. I know several very large fellowships that are blessed by God. But it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You've you got to work around those challenges and barriers to relationship. Why am I against multi-location churches? I think I've answered that question already. <laughs> Staring at me at a screen as good-looking as I am is probably not what you want to do on a Sunday morning. That was sarcasm, by the way. And then I can't be there. I can't see your reaction. I'm, I'm talking right now, and I'm, I'm teaching, and I'm seeing your reaction. We're, 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 yes, okay, this isn't a dialogue right now, but I'm sharing and teaching you face-to-face. This is important. It's an important aspect of teaching the Word of God. I'm actually here with you right now. You know, This isn't one of those avatars. Have you seen those things now? People pay to go to concerts, and it's like a hologram of the person. The person's dead, but they go to, oh, I'm going to pay to see a concert. It's a hologram of the person. Now they got this show where it's like one of those American Idol-type shows where uh, it's not the person. It's their avatar out there singing. I guess the person's backstage somewhere, and the judges are watching this avatar, and I'm thinking, these people are weird. These people are nuts. What on earth? Why, why do you need to look at an avatar when you can just look at the person? I, I don't understand any of it. Maybe I'm old. Maybe I'm old and cranky. But I've come to the place where I really appreciate relationship. So anything in the church that hinders relationship with God or with one another, I am firmly set against. And I am extremely for anything that benefits and increases relationships within the church, relationships with one another, and your relationship with God. I believe John felt the same way. I think it's clear in his writings. Sometimes you just have to go there. Sometimes you just need to look someone in the eye and love them with the truth in person.
Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you for teaching us from your word in a way that we can understand and in a way that we can appreciate and apply. Lord, I pray if there's anything that was said tonight that isn't of you, then may everyone forget it. And if anything I said this evening is something that you want people to remember, may they take it to heart and apply it to their hearts that they might grow in their relationship with one another and their relationship with you. Lord, we hold to the truth that you came and died on a cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven where you ever lived to make intercession on our behalf, and that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that if we put our faith in those truths in the gospel message, give our hearts to you and receive you as our Lord and Savior, that we know that we have peace with you, peace with God, that we have eternal life, and that we'll spend an eternity with you and with all the saints in glory. We thank you for this and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.